Paris Rafik, who is a citizen of Great Britain uh, and a noted authority uh, with a great interest in the subject of radicalization and extremism. His particular uh, beat is his own community, which is the Muslim community. Uh, we will have speakers whose interests are uh, expanded beyond that community. We're going to have Robert Westridge at some point, who is a world-renowned scholar of anti-Semitism from the Hebrew University. Uh, Joseph Delishkin, who is a world popularizer, but an extremely important writer on uh, Jewish themes, including uh, books on the theory of anti-Semitism. Uh, and I think really we picked a very interesting group of speakers. Mr. Rafik is the founding director of something called uh, CENTRI, which is Counter-Extremism Consultancy, Training, Research, and Interventions, an organization uh, based in Great Britain, is that case, that um, attempts to deal with problems created by uh, terrorism and uh, other forms of extremism, focusing, this is not a political event, uh, but focusing on those with that particular problem within uh, the Muslim community. Uh, there will be uh, people who will focus on European anti-Semitism and other worldwide uh, issues about uh, anti-Semitism. But tonight, I think, uh, if I'm not mistaken, Mr. Arpik is going to speak uh, about the particular problems that have arisen to a large extent uh, a more modern issue than ancient anti-Semitism because the particular problems have arisen largely in connection with the founding of the State of Israel, events that were before and after that, that has produced a, uh, an increase in anti-Semitism within the uh, Muslim community. I don't think that's a politically incorrect thing to say, if it is saying it anyway. Uh, I think it's just a, it's a clear fact. Um, he has also been the founding executive director of the Sufi Muslim Council and uh, a member of the UK Task Force on Responses to 7-7. We have 9-11. 7-7 uh, uh, is the date on which the horrible bombings occurred in London. Uh, and he, Mr. Rafik, has been on the commission to evaluate the British response to that. He's been an advisor to prime ministers, including the current prime minister and the broader prime minister, to secretaries of state, uh, and I located a juicy quote about him from the Secretary of State for Education, which calls Mr. Rafiq a pious Muslim and a true patriot. Uh, I would like to think that nobody would ever bother saying about me that I was a pious Jew and a true patriot, but I would like to think it's true. Uh, without further ado, I'm going to ask Mr. Rafiq to come. He's going to speak and have a PowerPoint presentation uh, after his uh, remarks. Uh, we will open the floor to remarks from you and comments and questions. I ask, I don't know who you are, some of you, and I don't know whether you're going to agree or disagree with the things he said, but um, this is uh, an academic environment, an environment in which free speech uh, within uh, broad bounds will be honored and recognized, and uh, I'm here not only because I'm a professor at the school, but because I'm a black belt, Judo, and uh, I'm going to enforce civility on this on this robust and and tough looking audience. Without further ado, Mr. Rafi. Oh, you can have 
It's so fun when you have notes. No challenge. Thank you, Richard. Um, my thanks to, to Richard for the introduction to Columbia University uh, and also to Charles for uh, for, Miska, for inviting me uh, on, I think, this inaugural session um, and the first time I've been full of many uh, on, on the important subjects on how um, anti Semitism could be combated, but generally racism uh, and extremism and radicalisation as well. Um, what I'm going to talk about today is really pathways to extremism and radicalisation and focus primarily on, I guess, my own community, which is the Muslim communities uh, in the UK and around the world. Um, and I want to start off with a little bit about my, my own background and how I got into this. Um, I remember born in the UK, 1965, lived there most of my life, went through the, the usual things that immigrants or some children of immigrants went through living in the West, um, working in the corporate sector, not really focusing on this until one day uh, my daughter, uh, who's a, an image of their uh, photograph there, came home, and she was about six or seven at the time, and she said, Daddy, I don't want to be a Muslim. And I said, why? And she said, because Muslims are always angry, they're always killing people, they're always burning guy forces. And I said, well, show me where you're getting these messages from. Uh, and she flips over the, on, onto the television, and there were some guys who happened to be Muslim, who were very angry, it looks as if they wanted to kill somebody, and they were burning effigies of George Bush and Tony Blair. And this started a process of self-reflection from my part. Here was a girl who was very young, coming from a practicing Muslim household. She didn't know anything about ideology, she didn't know anything about theology, she didn't know anything about the other. She just knew that she didn't want to be angry and she didn't want to hurt anybody. So they started a series of questions also around what is it that other Muslims must be thinking, and just as important for me, what is it that non-Muslims in the UK and around the world are thinking of us now as Muslims living in the West? Um, and what I'm going to talk about today really is the culmination of over um, eight years' work. Uh, and the basis of the presentation really is uh, extensive study with former radicals, looking at the research and engagement with the research that's been done in the UK and abroad, seven years um, of counter-terrorism intervention work, which has been undertaken with the police, the probation services, community, uh, community referrals, through a process called Channel in the UK, um, under the forms of uh, interventions, observations of the data that have been gathered over the last 10 years, uh, and the 120 plus cases that have led to convictions in terrorism within the UK, and still terrorism in particular, um, and looking at theoretical studies undertaken by colleagues and researchers looking at psychological uh, constitution and sociopathy. What I'm going to talk about today is what is Islamism? What's the difference between Islamism and traditional Islam? Is there a difference? Look at strategic radicalization. Look at some of the pathways and tactics. Look at some of the institutions. The importance of anti-Semitism within this radicalization. Combating violence extremism, which is I guess the, um, the response to terrorism that the US has taken. Um, look at some of the analysis and lessons learned from the UK. And then just some um, recommendations as well. So what is Islamism? Well, Islamism essentially is a political ideology which actually tries to assume a more or less single interpretation of faith as a political creed and system. It looks at medieval political, uh, points, uh, a medieval political point of view with modern ideological assumptions, but within a modern framework, medieval political mindset, and pre-modern laws. 
Islamism looks to set up a Khalifa. An example of some of the ways that Islamists would like to rule under a Khalifa uh, would be the Muslim Brotherhood's victory in Egypt um, after the, the recent elections that took place. And the subsequent draft constitution, when it was altered, where Article 2 regarding the role of Sharia was changed to and the principles of Islamic Sharia are the main source of legislation was what it was originally, but now then it's changed to and Islamic Sharia is the main source of legislation. Subtle difference, but a key difference in terms of interpreting a particular theological and ideological viewpoint. In essence, Islamists, amongst other things, want three things. To create an Islamic state with their version of Sharia as law, and again, the Article 2 from uh, um, um, the Muslim Brotherhood Constitution promotes that. Expand the state to take over the world, whether it's now or whether it's later, at some stage, I guess the rest of the world, if that ever came to be, wouldn't want it to happen and would resist, so the use of force at some stage would be necessary. And thirdly, wipe Israel off the map. Mixed with theology, Islamism is a, is a political viewpoint that is designed and needs an enemy to fight. So what's the difference between traditional Islam and Islamism? Well, just as there's a difference between social and socialism, social being a word used for people living together, and socialism being the stage in Marxist-Leninist theory, uh, which is sort of intermediate between capitalism and uh, uh, communism, Islam and Islamism is different as well. The first is a monotheistic religion characterized by the acceptance the doctrine of submission to God and to Muhammad peace be upon him as the chief and last prophet of God, versus Islamism, which is a political ideology holding that Islam is not only a religion but also a political system. Islam traditionally has stated as being primarily a way to God, a composite of spiritual traditions. Islam is diverse in its interpretation of Sharia, um, the extent of Sharia, the application of Sharia, and the concept of Sharia. For example, Al-Azhar University in Cairo recognized that there are over 432 legitimate interpretations of jurisprudence of Sharia. And Islamism assumes a single type of enforcement of Sharia through either the modern states or revival of ancient empires. Let's look at Muslims in the West. According to the Pew Research Center, there are approximately 45 million Muslims living in the West. Various heritage mainly Asian, Turkish, and African, uh, less Arab than you would think, although in the US, uh, one would estimate, recent estimations say that approximately 20 to 25% of the Muslims living in the US are from Arab origins. Most Muslims living in the West have poor Islamic education. For example, when I went to the mosque as a youngster, I essentially learned two things from the mosque. One, how to incorrectly pronounce the Quran, and secondly, how to carry out my daily obligations. Same thing is still happening amongst the Muslim institutions in the US and the UK and around the West. But what this means is that as Muslims in the West grow older and explore their Islamic identity, there isn't enough resilience to extremists who might portray an anti-Semitic, hate a, a form of Islam which is extremist and virgin towards um, violence. The demographics of Muslims in the West is younger. For example, According to Salford University, a study, uh, recent study taken about four years ago, uh, under 70, sorry, over 70% of the British Muslims are under the age of 40. That's a significant um, uh, demographic figure to look at. 
there is called a misdirection by political scholars who like to call themselves Islamic scholars, and some of that comes from the Middle East, some of that comes from Pakistan, etc. Tensions in the Swing communities are growing. There is more and more fear and distrust. When I was younger and growing up in uh, Britain, um, there wasn't this element of faith-based identity politics. People never regarded or measured me by my faith. People either thought I was British or didn't like me, it was Pakistani origin or Paki or whatever, but never as a Muslim. Nowadays, we actually tend to fall into the trap of measuring people by their faith, and that's something certainly that Islamists doesn't want us to do. There isn't enough English language mainstream, um, moderate, and I don't like the word moderate, but I'll use it uh, to highlight because to me, traditional classical Islam is moderate. But there isn't enough literature uh, and voice, and not enough voices. There's a lack of understanding of Western Muslims, and vice versa. Um, there is a growth in anti-Semitism. But let's not forget that anti-Semitism uh, exists in Europe long before the Muslim world. Uh, and some commentators believe that it's been absorbed into some of the Muslim traditions for political use. And again, um, some Muslim organisations have given youngsters the belief that there is a concept called al and al Arabic. And that's loyalty and enmity for the sake of God. This is to actually hate somebody who is different to you. That can be other Muslims or non-Muslims, but especially people who happen to be Jewish or, or of another faith. So let's look at strategic radicalization. Well, the problem with radicalizing somebody is that one has to look at implementing extreme ideology uh, across the board. So accept Islamism or extremism, uh, Muslims have to actually reject the peaceful heritage that they had of their parents and grandparents. And it's not an easy conversion. The only way to make this conversion is to change the Muslim mind. Uh, and that's exactly what extremists aim to do, not only in the Muslim world, but also in the West as well. The taxes that they use uh, are the same in the UK, the US, and around the world. Uh, and that's really a series of uh, creating a series of organizations and institutions, each with its own objectives, controlled by complicated uh, web interlock directories. Similar to the way the communists, I guess, used to organize dissent and win control of trade unions and peace movements. Uh, in this case, however, the targets are mosques initially, religious schools, uh, Islamic centres and media. So what do they do? Well, one of the things that they actually do is to set up institutions through funding through the Middle East and a number of places and try and teach us that the faith that their parents and grandparents had uh, fits into one of four categories. It's bidah, haram, shit and kufar. What does that mean? Innovation, it's not allowed. Um, the practices are associated with false um, um, deity, so the practice of Islam, and it's taking somebody to a state of non-belief. Uh, a little story around this. I remember uh, around about 2009, I was engaged in a speaking tour up and down uh, the UK and around Europe, and there was one particular chap who came up to me uh, after a presentation. He was from Pakistani origin, and he hugged me, and he started crying. Uh, the Britishness in me wanted to sort of push him away, but the Pakistani in me sort of tried to hug him, so it's sort of half-hearted, pushing away and hugging. And then he told me a story, and uh, really astounded me. He moved and migrated to the UK as a youngster, with very little education, and he undertook manual work for most of his life. As most immigrants, when he had children, he wanted his children to do well and move up the social ladder, so he was absolutely pleased with himself 
when his son managed to gain a place in a university, a very prestigious university, uh, to read medicine. So not only was you know, he, all of his hard work, as far as he was concerned, um, um, paying off, but his son would be able to, to actually earn more reward for him within the community as well. Within the first year, his son used to come over and he started, you know, talking about Islam a lot more, even though his father was quite secular, and he started asking about questions about Islam, and started wearing his clothes in a particular manner, and started actually growing a beard, etc. So the father thought, you know what? Not only is this double-minded, not only is this guy going to be a doctor, but he's also going to be a much better Muslim than me as well. Second year, the guy came over and started getting political, started talking about Israel, Palestine, started talking about Iraq, Afghanistan, and a whole range of things. But then he started doing something which was quite interesting. He lived at home, and at dinner time, what he would do is he would separate his food into two halves. He would eat one half, and he wouldn't eat the other half. So eventually, after a you know, few months of this going past, the guy got his wife to the mother to ask, you know, why was this happening, what's going on? And eventually they got to the bottom of it. This youngster had been radicalized to such an extent that he believed that because his father was wishing the next door neighbor a Merry Christmas, he was doing something which was a bidah, which meant that he was um, uh, doing something that was haram, which meant that he was doing something that was uh, causing him shit, which took him outside of the fold of Islam. However, because he wanted to practice the greater jihad in inverted commas, he had to stay alive. So what he would do was separate the food, and he'd say one half of it he won't eat, the other half he will because that's what he needs to eat to stay alive to perform the jihad. And the real reason why his parents was crying wasn't because of this, it was because one morning they woke up and they found a note that this young man had wandered off somewhere in Afghanistan and was off to fight the jihad against British and US forces, and he's not heard from them since. And this is really part of the stage one. The second stage, which I'll actually look at in a bit more detail, is the setting up of a lot of organizations and institutions within society, each claiming to speak for the different parts, and umbrella organizations at the top. And the third part, really, is the movement of finances through shell companies, um, which you know, are, are designed to, to effect this radicalization at a fast pace, but avoid detection. And I guess some, a lot of it is coming from the Middle East. Uh, and there is a CIA document that says that over $80 billion has been spent by one country alone, Saudi Arabia, in propagating this particular theology and ideology around the West. And again, this whole process is designed, it's designed to create a rapid ideological change. So what is this example of phase two? Well, if you look at the right-hand side of the triangle, um, underneath we have a lot of organisations, institutions. On the right-hand side, which is, I guess, the violent, angry side, the left-hand side is the more sort of uh, middle-class aspects of society. This is something that's happening in the UK, the USA, and around Europe as well. On the right-hand side, let's look at some youngsters, and this is around how organisations are set up to attract people, Muslims, to their, their own cause. If there happens to be some young, youngsters who are maybe ex-drug addicts, uh, involving crime, a bit more violence, organisations have been set up which actually actively go out and recruit these youngsters and reform them. On the left-hand side, most British Muslims, most Western Muslims, most uh, US Muslims just want to go out and have fun, maybe play a bit of sports, hang around a number of organisations, sports clubs, weight training clubs, gyms, etc. etc. An example of this is the, the, uh, the lead bomber of uh, 7-7. He was actually doing his radicalisation and recruiting from a gymnasium 
in, uh, in Yorkshire in, in, in England. Let's go for triangle on the right hand side. Activism within the university. When I was young and I was at the university, I wanted to ban the bomb. That was the, the, the thing that was the radical thought in the early 80s. So universities have always been a place where radical thought has been explored. There are a number of organizations which will take this activism within the Muslim, um, Western Muslims' minds and actually bring them to their own angry, um, anti-Semitic, hate-based, homophobic viewpoints and actually start getting into public things at the university. On the left-hand side, again, people in universities, you know, when I was in university, I was doing other things other than banning the bomb, uh, but I knew that Ramadan, I became particularly religious, and this is quite common with Muslims. We may do nothing in terms of being observant Muslims throughout the whole year, come Ramadan, we'll start fasting and doing things that Muslims want to do, probably for the most part. So a number of organizations uh, will set up events for the average secular Muslims to bring them in. Again, on the right-hand side, angry lobbies after people at the universities and institutions, then you get the political elites and the social elites, and a number of umbrella organizations at the top. The line on the right-hand side is very important, and that is where blockers, influential blockers, have been set up by these organizations and players to block the majority of non-extremist Muslims from getting into the, the playing field. I'll give you an example of this. Of this. Um, in uh, Bangladesh, the Islamist organization, the Jumat Islami, uh, used to be a political entity that used to hold elections. They were banned recently, although they, they sort of reinvented themselves and coming in a different format. But when they were a party, they only used to have a handful of seats in parliament. But they controlled the bureaucracy, which meant that the power that they wielded throughout society was much more disproportionate to the actual power that they had. In the UK and the US, there are people who are from an Islamist background, Islamist supporters, who are actually blocking the majority of the um, uh, mainstream Muslims who aren't thinking of sitting at home thinking, you know, the answer to whether I'm going to pay my mortgage or not is Israel Palestine. The answer to whether I'm going to, my children are going to do well at school or not is what's happening in Iraq or Afghanistan. This is the average Muslim. And these guys, because they're active, well organized, well funded, are actually in place providing disproportionate access to politicians. Um, and, and, and other influential players within society uh, to what they actually represent in terms of their representation. So one of the pathways. Well, essentially, a lot of people, myself included in the past, have uh, often spoken about um, a single trajectory that actually moves people towards uh, radicalization within the Islamist traditions. That sort of dynamic and that, all of that does happen. There are four things that we've, I've actually observed and my colleagues have observed. First one really is that people are radicalized to an extent where they believe uh, that there is a worldview that the West is at war with Islam. There is a selective observation of political issues and grievances. And this leads to the, uh, the accepting the plausibility of violence or ideologies as, nor as normal and appropriate to the world. This then sees the extremist ideology as the only ideology and a reading of its religious text that are constant, uh, constant and resonant with the world as it is. These individuals aren't often drawn to the Wahhabi or Salafi theology of jihadism, but to the political projects and activities as being a manifestation of fighting the war against Islam that is being perpetrated by the West. Whether it's the cartoons, uh, irrelevant films, uh, the wars in the geopolitical East, or many of the other myriad of examples often cited, they're all viewed as examples of this. Acts of terror are seen in the same light 
as a response to this war, intellectual, political, and military ones. Second pathway is theological terrorism. There are individuals with a full-blown belief that the Islamist ideology is the only valid political reality that Muslims can accept. They believe that terrorism is a form of jihad or struggle uh, to remove governments and their supporters, i.e. the West from Muslim majority countries, or what they would refer to as Muslim lands. Israel is a classic example of this, although there's a paper that I'm doing with this gap, um, which will be coming out fairly soon, which will be a theological and ideological reputation to Hamas and this Shabbat uh, which will sort of help to overcome some of those. Uh, these pathways are specific, theologically driven aims, and they believe that they have an authentic reading of medieval Islamic scripture. They believe that this category of people can only be engaged by people with the relative theological expertise to demonstrate that the views that they hold are inauthentic and, uh, and are a heterodox reading of scripture. The third pathway really is that there are individuals in the world, uh, in the UK, USA, who may be of an Iraqi, Afghani, Pakistani origin, who may have had some previous experiences. These could be uh, collateral damage uh, caused by uh, drones uh, involving our troops, or personal experiences of treatment uh, in the UK or USA, which makes these individuals personally susceptible to violent ideology. These individuals are often motivated by a sense of moral indignation. And finally, the fourth one, there are people with general mental health problems. You know, um, there are people, convicted terrorists, who um, are easy targets for radicalizers and recruiters to actually bring people to their own viewpoint and actually move them towards a particular viewpoint. The individuals can be radicalized at a very fast pace, but what are the tactics that they use? Well, you know, we talked about the manipulation and creations of uh, grievances. Um, there is an ability by these recruiters to intermingle with people who have similar concerns uh, or similar beliefs but are less radical. This is done in order to give them legitimacy and also to present themselves within people who are vulnerable to their recruitment. There is a targeting of a selection of brighter individuals who are more accepting of the core and belief system. The grooming takes place with, um, through individual mentors. The leadership figures actually maintain a bit of a distance. Um, but he's still engaged for motivational purposes uh, and the selection of specialisation um, and specialness and admission. The recruiters seek to focus on the four pathways and then look to provide solutions to these people that they can actually identify with. So uh, the other taxes will. The radicalisation, typically to the four pathways, tends to take a particularly common route. This is not the only route, but it seems to be the most common. The first one is presenting somebody with a personal crisis. This can be a perceived personal crisis. Um, the organisation that I work with, um, we have a network of former radicals and extremists, and one of my fellow directors used to be a recruiter for Isabel Tahrir. And he often cites the story where he was on the train one day, and when he was recruiting, he saw, happened to see a mother, a young child, with a newspaper, and the headline was paedophile. And that's all we needed to see. He started a conversation engaging with this woman on the fact that how paedophilia is becoming more of a uh, problem within the West and created this personal crisis and then presented her with a prison through which the only solution to her personal crisis was a lens which is Islamism. 
and again the theology and ideology. This woman then went on to be a major recruiter herself for a number of Islamist organisations. And then once people believe in this prison and join the group, they're actually encouraged to become um, specialists and take on certain tasks for sustainability and build capacity for their cause. And finally, getting people to internalising values and support for violence, which is a big step, but as I'll show in the diagram later on, it's not a bigger step from somebody who actually holds views which may be racist or anti-Semitic or angry or Islamist in nature to get into that point. And again, it's all about dehumanising the other, the concepts of uh, the word kafir and buffer, which I'll talk about in a, little bit, uh, in, a, in a little while. But at the beginning, there is no full disclosure of the ideological parameters, nor the violent uh, means of embrace. Mosques themselves, uh, in my opinion, mosques aren't the major source of radical activities as they used to be, and that's down to a number of exposures, but still there needs to be some caveat around that. There still are mosques which allow extremist groups to operate within their parameters. For example, this Bataria holding Arabic classes in a number of mosques in New York and Washington and a number of other places as well. There are some mosques which are led by people who support extremist ideologies, there are activists who are not necessarily part of the mosque itself, but will operate from there. And there are some institutions where their theology is sympathetic to the certain brands of terrorism and extremism. The internet, experts are divided by what they see as internet radicalization. But in my work, I've suddenly come across certain cases that I would like to share. Uh, there are individuals who already have a cause motivation and they will use the internet to find more information. Their individuals are seen as a method or a means of anonymously spreading their ideology and theology. It's a means by for people who may have a form of personal crisis, be it racism, be it whatever it is, to actually look for a group to belong to. Um, and again, you know, it's a way for people to find other like-minded people who may uh, have uh, certain areas of vulnerability. And of course, it is a means of discrete communication, often uh, spreading a propaganda as well. Uh, for example, Al-Qaeda's magazine Inspire, which is in the English language, is often used to, uh, um, and, uh, as, uh, and transmitted through the internet. Universities is an interesting one. An interesting statistic from a recent study by the Henry Jackson Society um, looks and analyzes that there used to be a belief that it's only the Muslims in the West who are suffering from lack of education, who are suffering from poor social conditions that are actually going out and becoming terrorists and supporting extremism or radicalisation. But in the UK, 47% of convicted terrorists attended universities. Six convicted terrorists were former presidents Islamic societies in the universities. Universities themselves, many universities will actually accept extremist preachers on campus to come along and do their sermons. Now, I'm not saying that we should ban these preachers or we should curb uh, the, the free speech amongst, uh, within the universities, but there needs to be some form of counterbalance. This moment in time, there are extremists who are floating within universities and there's no counter-narrative that is being given to young, vulnerable, Western Muslims. And again, not enough counter-campaigns. 
prisons are a bit of a unique situation where there, you know, there are many instances where the belonging to a group within prisons uh, has meant that there have been once again, has meant there have been forced conversions. Um, for some reason, some prisons tend to lump people in with belonging to certain ethnic groups and origins. And of course, sometimes people will lump other people, they may be from a Pakistani background, they may be from an African-American background, they may be from an Arab background, will lump them in with other Muslims. Of course, also floating in the prison are radical extremist preachers who have been there for recruiting and radicalizing in the first place. Well, this gives them an open playing field for them to, uh, to recruit. So let's look at uh, anti-Semitism. Manuel Tahawi, an Egyptian New York columnist, calls Israel the opium of the Arabs. It's an intoxicating way for the Arabs to forget their own failings, or at least blame them on someone else. Arab leaders have a long practice of using Israel as a pretext for maintaining states of emergency, both at home and putting off uh, reform. An example, at a meeting in 2005 uh, in Amman, uh, an American official suggested that it was time for, a, for an uh, Arab democratic spring. <laughs> the Pavlovian response from Amar Musa, who I've met, um, the Secretary General of the Arab League at the time, was this. There will be no spring or autumn or winter or summer without solving the Palestine problem. We want our friends in the United States to know that this is the consensus in the, religion, uh, sorry, in the region. This viewpoint, this Pavlovian response, and this wanting to blame their own failings on Israel, and hence then Jews, is a way of fueling anti-Semitism and then spreading it around the world. Anti-Semitism within the scriptural, or the scriptures. Um, there are apparently texts within the Quran and Hadith which justify taking hostile attitudes uh, to people of the book, especially the Jews. An example of one is, um, take them not as friends and allies, uh, in Arabic, they are friends and allies of each other. There's another hadith that the uh, Hamas used to radicalize uh, Muslims both in the Middle East and around the world, where it talks about the end days of killing Jews and that you know the end time will not happen until there will be a war against Jews and that rocks will climb, uh, cry out and certain trees will cry out, oh Abdullah, there is a Jew behind me, hiding behind me, cut off his head. Yeah, these things, these scriptures do exist. But they've been taken by Islamists to be A, general, B, applicable today, and C, to describe people not based upon actuality, but essentially on their nature. The reality is that that verse and that hadith that I mentioned, the verses are not A specific, they're not applicable to the Prophet's time in many cases, and certainly not in the world today, and they're related to certain incidents and tribes, and not to a character of people. Traditional scholars do not view these teachings, these scriptural uh, messages, as modern Islamists do. The key word that's used is kufr and kafir. There are verses within uh, the Quran that actually talk about, mention the word kufr, mention the word, uh, the word kafir. Traditionally, traditional classical Islam has actually said that the only person that can be called a kafir is somebody um, is by somebody by God, and then only if they refute the truth, they hide the truth. The word kafir in Arabic means to 
uh, denotes from the, the verb to hide the truth, is when somebody has, knows the message of one God, and then somebody, through uh, obstinacy, through haughtiness, through arrogance or pride, um, decides that they're going to reject it. In fact, um, there is a, a, a great uh, quote from um, uh, the respected Shaltut from Al-Azhar University that says, whoever does not believe in these doctrines is not a Muslim, like a Muslim, and the Islamic rules regarding Muslims do not apply. This does not mean that such a person is a kafir with God, but rather that such a person is not requested to perform the obligations imposed by God upon Muslims in terms of religious rituals. This is something that traditional classical Islam believes and Islamists don't. And I mentioned the killing of Jews towards the, the end time. It's a hadith that's been taken as Kabar al-Hahad and contradicts Islam per se. And in fact, there was a, a, a similar saying amongst uh, Jewish traditions, and Imanite was asked a similar question. Uh, at the time of the coming of the Messiah, will Muslims and Jews be united? And he answered, yes. All people of true faith will follow the Messiah. And that's what that hadith actually looks at as part of a collection of hadiths, and it's been taken in isolation by Islamists to radicalize young Muslims and make them anti-Semitic, and hence view the world from their particular lens. Again, a counter example, another counter argument. So, you know, often Israel comes up whenever I'm talking to my fellow Muslims and others as well. The Quran actually, a lot of people don't realize, the Quran actually recognizes Israel. And in, um, the Quran chapter 17, verses 100 to 104, we believe, as Muslims, that God says, Pharaoh sought to scare them, the Israelites, out of the land of Israel. But we, God, drowned him, I'm talking about Pharaoh, together with all who were with him. Then we, God, said to the Israelites, dwell in this land, the land of Israel. When the promise of the hereafter, end of days, comes to be fulfilled, we, God, shall assemble you, the Israelites, all together in the land of Israel. Traditional classical Islam believes that this prophecy has now been fulfilled. So again, looking at the classical role of uh, classical, uh, uh, classical theology, certainly the role by great Muslim scholars like Ghazali, Razi, Sayyuti, um, believe that anybody, whoever he or she may be, who is sincere and is saying that will be saved either directly or by intercession, therefore cannot be a kafir. And again, certain Salafi scholars, you know, uh, people like Ibn Taymiyyah and Shaukani believe that all those who make efforts to find the truth will be saved based on God. Um, on the fact that God doesn't place a greater uh, strain on somebody than they can bear. And again, there are problematic statements found in medieval scripts, but these are the exceptions rather than the norm. And again, you know, there is a whole history um, of a role played by Jews and Christians in narration of Quranic um, exegesis, and this is yeah, there is a whole authentic hadith by the Prophet, we believe, Prophet Prophet, away from them, referring to the Jews and the Christians from there, there is no harm. So therefore there is a tradition of Israelis which has been expunged and purged by Islamists and Wahhabis and Salafis. Um, an example of this is a tafsir, a commentary by Ibn Kathir, which has been tampered with and edited to remove this from the heritage. Just touching on to a sort of final section, the, there is a response from the US, which is called 
combating violence extremism. What's the origin of this? Well, there was a study that was carried out in the UK and the US. If you look at the graph, there is X percent, and it varies from which country you look at, of Muslims that support directly Al Qaeda. Then there is Y percent which will sympathise, and then there is Z percent which will empathise. The shortest time noted by security agencies in the UK, in Canada, and in Holland of individuals travelling from a position of empathising with violence and terrorism to actually supporting it is one and a half weeks. That's quite scary. The whole concept of combating violence extremism is really to move that graph to the left and build resilient communities. So what is it really? It's basically a failed version of the now defunct preventing violence extremism strategy in the United Kingdom. The violence extremism strategy focuses on violence and not the ideology. It allows the partnering and empowering of extremists who do not outwardly display violence. This is happening in the, U in the USA right now. It allows the funding and the using of taxpayers' money to organisations that are not outwardly violent but disagree with shared American values. For example, liberal democratic societies, uh, political participation, women's rights, death to apostates, although they do put a caveat around that in Muslim lands, etc. This helps to build the capacity for non-violent extremists. It gives credibility to extremists, senior politicians, attend platforms as the US ambassador sharing a platform with known extremists that the UK government has decided do not fit around the UK government's table because they're anti-Semitic and support Islamist hate-based theology and ideology. They give credibility to senior politicians, and of course they believe that there is a use, a role play for a role that non-violent extremists can play in de-radicalizing violent extremists. But a question, really, an open question. Do you, do I, want my tax dollars to go to organisations? Do I want our, my government to support organisations that believe things like no Muslims should serve in the US or any other nationalist army and at particularly the time when he or she could find themselves firing on Muslims? Do we want our money going to people who believe that participation in their parliaments is a sin? Do we want our money to go to organisations? Do we want our support to go to organisations? Do we want our governments to support organisations that believe that living under man-made laws, man-made laws is a, is a sin, and anybody who does that or believes doesn't believe that is a disbeliever. Do we believe that there is a death penalty? Do we want to support people who believe that anybody who converts from Islam to Christianity or another faith, although in an Islamic state, should be put to death? Do we believe that our support and taxpayers' money and empowerment should go to organisations that have all of these beliefs? Well, I don't believe they should. I'm sure that most sensible people would believe the same. Why, in that case, are governments in the West, the US included, not cutting funding, not supporting um, uh, people who are classed as non-violent extremists? Why would they stop supporting people who are classed as non-violent extremists? Because to cut the funding and cut support is not demonization of Muslims, and this promotion assumes that the default position for Muslims 
is extremism. And I actually find that quite patronising as a mainstream moderate Muslim living in the West. So why hasn't worked off so well? In the US, CBE is the old PBE, the use of using non-violent extremists to be radicalized jihadis. Numerous instances, there was one in um, Luton, uh, a guy called uh, Al-Abdali, who was a suicide bomber in Stockholm. He went to an organization, a mosque or institution in Luton where he became a regular member of the congregation. This particular institution is being supported, or rather was being supported by the government uh, as a bulwark against terrorism, but they weren't able to stop him. In fact, they didn't even spot the fact that this guy was potentially going to blow himself up. This thing is happening now in the US. There are people in the US who are being supported by the US government who, on their own websites, believe that suicide bombing is justified as a legitimate military tactic in the Middle East. There are people in the US and around the West who are being supported by the government, by your government, by my government, well, not so much by the UK government anymore, that believe that attacks on US and British troops in Iraq and Afghanistan is legitimate. These people believe on their own website that attacks on women in Western countries are justified. And this really is a dangerous notion that the only way of bringing or winning back these violent jihadis is by using these non-violent people. The, the policy and the strategy now was involved in the original putting together of, uh, of the government's response and now in, in the review uh, a couple of years ago as well. It's no longer preventing violent extremism in the UK. It's now called prevent. And it's just preventing ideology. The ideology of far-right extremism and the ideology of Islamist extremism. It's about three eyes, looking at ideology, interventions and individuals. Not just Al-Qaeda, but names Islamism as a dangerous ideology within the Western society. British government no longer engages with organisations that do not espouse shared British values. We've banned preachers who purvey anti-Semitic, hate-based, uh, Al-Qaeda-supporting rhetoric from coming in the UK, although here in the US you allow them to go into 50 million households via satellite TV. Great. Um, we in the UK have, fund, have cut funding and support from these organisations. No minister, UK minister, is allowed to share a platform with non-violent extremists. It's not everything, but it is a step in the right direction and there's more to do. It's very quickly for the last sort of five minutes. One of the recommendations, well, more interventions are required around the individuals, around the institutions, and around the ideology. Very, very important, it's not happening. There needs to be a more focused, developed approach to actually providing these um, interventions and not really isolating individuals from their human needs, but working alongside the mainstream uh, services in dealing with the individual. There needs to be adaptive styles, but there needs to be a coming together of the society as a whole, people who are American Muslims, people who may be American Jews, people who may be American Christians, or people of no faith, coming together and recognizing that this is a problem for the whole of the community. Recognizing that there is engagement and there is partnership. Engage with everyone. You know, sometimes we need to engage with somebody to debate them. We'll need to engage with people at universities, and I do this in the UK, as do a number of my colleagues and around Europe. We will go to universities and actually engage with extremists to debate them, let the audience make up their own mind. A lot of my Jewish friends 
believe that, you know, we really need to engage and partner with people who don't like us. Well, guess what? Islamist organizations are anti-Semitic and this will not change. It is in their DNA. Islamism, from, especially from the, uh, the Mufti Hussein Ermini from Jerusalem onwards, has to have anti-Semitism in its ideology, otherwise it will not exist. Because the third goal that they have is to wipe Israel off the, off the map. The Islamists, by partnering with these groups, will achieve political cover, legitimacy and protection, and their primary target is not to sit down with people who may be of a different faith or different heritage and work out real practical solutions, but you know what? To build their own capacity. My own request to people is that you don't partner with Islamist organizations and actually sell out liberal, moderate, mainstream Muslims who still are the majority here in the USA and around the world. Work to be done, there needs to be more work in looking at the traditions of contemporary views of anti-Semitism within um, modern-day uh, Middle East and the Arab world and non-Arab um, Islamic countries around the world as well. Um, I mentioned that there is a, a study which uh, a draft version of Dr. Charles which we're looking at the theological and ideological reputation of Hamas and the Spanish more work around that needs to be done. There need to be religious stances by people by scholars who happen to be Muslim or non-Muslim against political positions which are racist or anti-Semitic or extremist. Uh, again, you know, recognize that the reality of Islamist movements around the world really is coming from the growth of Islamist movements is coming from the USA. You may look at me and think, well, how come? Well, in the Middle East, Islamist organizations really have been banned virtually from the inception. They don't know how to exist in the Middle East by a myriad of dummy organizations and dummy names. The ideas, the intellectual ability to actually proliferate ideas around the world is coming from the USA. Islamist organizations from the USA right now, undercover, under the political cover and legitimacy from, provided by the US government and other organizations, are pumping out this anti Semitic, hate based um, rhetoric funded by Middle Eastern money around the world. And London, you know, is one of the places where this is actually now being propagated from. So, I guess we need to do more in the, in the USA. And again, looking at the uh, impending problems of uh, political Islam, you know, what is the difference? Understanding that to criticize a political interpretation of a faith, in this case, being Islam, doesn't necessarily mean that I don't like the word Islamophobia, but I'll use it. Doesn't mean that you are Islamophobic. You know, there are people who are Muslims that will criticise. You know, I think I think it's wrong for societies to say, well, it's okay for me to, as a Muslim, as a practicing Muslim, to stand on a platform and say, political Islam has this problem. Such and such a Muslim is anti-Semitic. Such and such a Muslim is is racist, or etc. etc. But if somebody who isn't Muslim said it, they'd be probably Islamophobic. That's wrong. Look at the ideas and look at the actual the rhetoric and, and, and the narrative that's coming out from an individual rather than actually who's saying it. And I think that an alliance, a broad spectrum alliance of people is needed to actually take this on. And I'll just uh, move on fairly quickly. I think this is the last slide. Um, I think the government, and again there's a, a paper coming out on this as well, 
again through this guy, uh, look at the government position, the US government position, about how they are combating violent extremism and learn from the lessons of the failed preventing violent extremism strategy in the UK. Don't give political legitimacy to non-violent extremists, don't fund them, don't support them, engage with them rather than partner with them, uh, and desist from the strategy of using non-violent extremists to de-radicalise violent ones, and don't just focus on, on Qaeda, because 60% of convicted terrorists in the UK don't actually have any Al-Qaeda in them. That's it, questions. Thank you very much. Thank you, Harris. That's a dazzling presentation. Um, I don't know how. Uh, I think we could show it again at uh, midnight and again at 6th Bar Avenue to absorb the whole thing. Um, but uh, really, we, we thank you. Uh, I'm happy to monitor the taking of questions. I might want to ask the first one to take the privilege myself of being called the convenor, which subjected me to a criticism that hasn't materialized yet. Uh, but my first question would be, to what extent do you think that this is a historical cycle in uh, Muslim history that has been uh, enacted in the past? And I'm asking that in particular to ask, what, to what extent do you believe that the Palestinian-Israel conflict uh, is at the center of this or simply an excuse in certain circles to fight uh, perceived injustice with terrorism? I'll, I'll take the second part of that question first. Uh, I want to say something quite controversial. I believe that Israel is Dar al-Islam, not Dar al-Khabar. Is Dar al-Islam, the house of Islam, not the house of war. Basically, I believe, as traditional classical Islam believes, that because Muslims in Israel, and I've been there many times, uh, Muslims in Israel are allowed to be the five pillars. Muslims in Israel are allowed to eat their food, uh, be it halal food or kosher food. Muslims in Israel are allowed to practice uh, their own method of um, the of, of marriage, etc. As for the fatwa issued by one of the greatest scholars in uh, from the Indian subcontinent, um, uh, Imam Ahmed Ghazal Khan Barelli, where he was asked a similar question about British rule um, in India, and he said that because all of these things apply, India under British rule is a house of Islam, therefore, theologically, it is wrong for Muslims to attack Britain, uh, to attack India, uh, attack Britain for it. Similarly, I believe, as traditional classical Islam does, that Israel is a house of Islam uh, because of all these things apply. Let's go back to the, the other aspects of this. There's a problem in Israel and Palestine, of course there is, I'm not going to say that there isn't. Um, Israel as a country does things well, and Israel as a country does things not so well. That doesn't mean that Israel doesn't have the right to exist. It has a right to be criticised for the things it doesn't do well. And I think that this is something that, this nuance is something that is not acceptable to Islamists. The use of anti-Israel and anti-Jewish rhetoric is something that is key and fundamental to Islamists to create a scapegoat and to rally support to their own viewpoint and their own ideology hate around the world. Not just the Arab, but around the world. Of course there are things happening in the Middle East. 
if you talk to Israelis, Israelis will say that there are Palestinians who are doing things uh, that are, you know, um, causing them harm, and vice versa, there will be things that Palestinians will say Israelis are doing things that cause them harm. Sure, there's a problem. The only people who can fix the problem are the people that live there in one But that doesn't mean that people should be anti-Semitic, that doesn't mean that Muslims should be anti-Semitic. But unfortunately, since, and I mentioned Mufti Hussain, um, I mean, I mean Hussain, the uh, Grand Mufti of uh, Jerusalem, who actually um, sided with Adolf Hitler during World War II, um, who had a reaction to Jews moving back to the Middle East, to Palestine at the time, and sort of took this view that he will take European anti-Semitism and incorporate it as, uh, as a number of scholars have talked about, Berman is, is one of them, um, and a number of others who have said that this European anti-Semitism really hasn't been absorbed into Islamist theology and support. Because let's not forget, Islamism isn't that old. You know, Salafi Wahhabi theology is only a couple hundred years old. And Islamist political ideology is less than a hundred years old. So it's not really a history or cycle in terms of actual theology and ideology, but it has existed in pockets, I guess, in pre-modern times in the past. Some of its fanaticism, that it's an ancient enough tradition. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, you look at the Ottomans and you look at sort of before them, number of, there's always been fanaticism in a lot of, you know, in most religious, you know, uh, points of view. There was a question over here. Back to the, you, you, you mentioned something about American like 15 million viewership. Are you referring to Al Unfortunately. Al Jazeera. So my question would be, you know, what do you think of the launch of Al Jazeera in the United States? And is it a good thing or bad thing? There are, two, there are two channels in the US that are problematic. One is a channel which is ironically named Peace TV. Peace TV, which has been set up by a Dr. Zakenek. It has two forms. It has an English version and an Urdu version. And another one is Al Jazeera. Dr. Zakanik is excluded from entry into the UK for being an anti-Semite and for being a supporter of Al-Qaeda and terrorism and being a racist, all brand racist. That television channel is being broadcast in the United States. And that's going to get to a number of Households. There are preachers such as himself, Hussein Yi is another one who's banned also from going into the UK. Uh, Bilal Phillips, who's an American, is also another regularly featured university college uh, scholar, regularly featured to spouse anti Semitism. And I have examples of anti Semitic viewpoints being broadcast on PCD. The real question, I guess, the one you mentioned was Al Jazeera. I believe Al Jazeera to be able to run in front. Muslim Brotherhood Front. Yeah, I I believe that the reason for that is that well, a number of reasons. Uh, one of the main ones is that they constantly have Yusuf Al Qadawi on, on the channel regularly. I don't know does everybody know who he is? No, nobody knows who he is. But Yusuf Qadawi believes that Jews should be killed. Yusuf Qadawi won't sit with Jews. Yusuf Qadawi believes that homosexuals should be thrown off a mountain. Uh, Yusuf Kanadawi believes that uh, all Shiites around the world 
this moment in time because of this uh, Syrian civil war are legitimate targets. Yusuf Kadadawi and Akabwala and on and on. Uh, excluded from the UK, he is one of the main broadcasters on, so one of the main um, scholars being presenting on Al Jazeera. He and others. The problem with Al Jazeera is that it's got more and more legitimacy, but it is still part of this, you know, taking the, moving the mainstream American Muslim households, and maybe non Muslims as well, onto a particular political position, which is either anti Semitic or Islamist or even Muslim power politics. And that I believe is dangerous, and that's something that I believe that Al Jazeera from concept has been wanting to do. That may be controversial, but that's what I believe. Yeah. Oh. First row, second row. First row. Um, well, antisemitism antedates Islam by centuries. And uh, it's easy to, to object to it and feel very moral. But very few people seem to be willing to, to find out why is it that anti-Semitism has persisted throughout the centuries with or without Muslims. And if you suggest that there might be something in the nature of the religion that might cause it, of course, you're on dangerous ground. But, but explaining is nothing to do with justifying. And it occurs to me that if you go around telling people that you are God's chosen people, they're going to resent it. If you tell people that you worship a man who is ready to kill his only son, they'll find that rather horrendous. And if you tell people that our God has promised us that if we obey him slavishly, we'll exterminate our enemies, and if we don't obey him, will exterminate us, which really happens. Now, again, this is the way I think other people might see it, and you don't need Muslim fanatics for that, but if you have a better explanation for the persistence of anti-Semitism right. over the Sony If you want to answer that, no. you may I, 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 Honestly, the, I don't think that's a, I don't think I really do want to answer this, uh, other than to say that the gross inaccuracy of saying that Jews worship a man who was going to kill his only son is an ignorant simplification of the story of the binding of Isaac that defies imagination well, in a grown adult. But that's how we're going Well, I don't believe that. I really don't, and I cannot explain the mystical, the mystical uh, uh, origin and cause of anti-Semitism is something that I spent a great deal of time thinking about. And I have only amorphous theories, and I don't think necessarily that this audience is here to hear about what possible reasons people have to be anti-Semitic. I think we could probably take as a given that anti-anything uh, generically is uh, unacceptable and that we don't need to even start a conversation that might justify in some way, even if that's not what you precisely mean the thinking. I could also theologically about what chosen people means, but what I'm mainly going to say is whatever the reasons for anti-Semitism, uh, I do not believe that it's rooted in any of the things that you've just suggested. That's my personal feeling. I wonder if anybody wants to chime in. I think we're better off probably diverting the conversation. Yes? Yes, I'd like to divert the conversation completely. I agree with you, sir. I'm Dr. Palmer. 
and you're the first person I've heard who has said that so much of this kind of inflammatory information is stemming from the United States. And unfortunately, I as a professor have been the victim of that. I have lost my job after 16 years because of tremendous anti-Israel feeling in much of academia. And a lot of what you're describing is coming from academia. And when you talk about taxes, we are supporting these academic institutions, but they are the very institutions which under the supposed guide of democracy are allowing all of this inflammatory information to come forth and indoctrinating students over and over again. And I'll, again, I'm Dr. Polner. I made the film called Brave Children of Israel, which includes Arabs as well as Jews. Uh, my website's www.challengingfilm.com, and I lecture with it. And because of that, again, I lost my job after 16 years. And I have a doctorate from this wonderful institution right here at Columbia. Thank you. And I'd love your email address if you're giving it out. Yeah, of course. It's uh, Harris. That's Hotel Alpha Romeo Alpha Sierra. H-A-R-A-S. Yes. At Outlook.com. At what? Outlook. Outlook. Yeah, .com. You see, that'll get to my library or wherever I'm And my email address for anybody who wants it is mp2106 at columbia.edu. And I challenge Columbia to take a stand against all of this because we are a major institution and we deserve to make this kind of a challenge. And thank you so much for coming. No, my pleasure. I just want to, to add to that. This, your story is not uncommon. Yes, I know. Uh, you, but nothing's done about it. Yeah, there, there's a friend of mine in the UK who is a professor and uh, a convert, somebody who converted to Islam, although a lot of people didn't know that, and he lost his job for a similar reason and ended up taking the first professorship of Islamic studies in Seoul University. Um, check. So, uh, yeah, it's not an uncommon, uncommon story at all. Yes. Thank you. Um, very, very interesting. You're assuming that, you're saying that the Muslim Brotherhood is Islamist, is that right? Yes. According, according to their website. Uh, a couple of things that came up. You said there's a difference between the United Kingdom and the United States in this area. Could you elaborate on that? Um, you, you talked about solving the, the necessity for outside Muslims to solve the problem of Palestine. You mentioned solving the problem of Palestine. Could you elaborate on that? And I, one more. Um, the insult of the, to Islam of the uh, Jews uh, conquering victorious in 1948. Is that, a, is that a theological issue or is that a cultural issue? I'll, I'll tackle the third one first. So, cultural. Because at the end of the day, um, historically, the region of Jerusalem has sometimes belonged to Muslims, sometimes belonged to Christians, sometimes belonged to a whole range of people, and it's more of a cultural factor rather than a theological Islamic position. Why? Because as I mentioned before, any state in the world, according to traditional classical Islam, as long as the parameters of people being allowed to practice their Islamic faith the way they want to is observed, that country is a Muslim country, is an Islamic country. So Israel, I would argue, and debate with anybody, 
that according to the definitions of traditional classical Islam, Israel is a Jewish country, is an Islamic country, is a Christian country, is whatever. So, it was, so the 1948 um, um, uh, war was a cultural loss for, I guess, Jordan and, and, and the local Arabs, etc., rather than for Muslims per se. Because I, I, I've been to Al-Aqsa many times, and I actually get more problems from Muslims in Al-Aqsa than I do from Jews. And it's a whole range, probably because I'm Pakistani origin, maybe because I look Jewish, I don't know. But, but it could be for a number of reasons. Um, but I, I get more hassle from them on America. So it's an Arab cultural thing, rather. People, you know, we, we have this view that people are Muslims. We're told that Muslims, through the media, through a whole range of political activism, that every Muslim around the world is sitting at his dining table every evening, Okay, what are we going to do about Israel and Palestine? What are we going to do about Al-Aqsa? What are we going to do about Jerusalem? Muslims in the West, in the overall priority and hierarchy of things, don't really care. They care more about what their children are doing at night time when they're not at home. They care more about whether their children are taking drugs or not. They care more about whether their children are getting a good education. They care more about whether they're going to be able to pay their mortgage at the end of the day. Yes. It is a consideration because the region has, I guess, a heritage, a religious heritage. So yes, it's going to be a consideration. But in the priority, the hierarchy of things, it's not that high a consideration. However, amongst the activists, the Islamist activists, it is. So you had there one more question. I think that was about the difference between the UK and the USA. Um, there's a book written by somebody that I know called Melody Phillips in the UK. Um, and she wrote a book called Londonistan. It's worth reading. Uh, I don't necessarily agree with everything in there, but the theme of it is fairly accurate. I don't necessarily agree with everything that Melanie Phillips writes. Yeah. <laughs> but I will say that everything Melanie Phillips writes yeah. is worth reading. Yes, absolutely. And it, every word that she yeah. writes is worth reading, whether you agree with it or not. Absolutely. And London has, I'll give you an example. In, in Egypt, the Muslim Brotherhood now are being hounded and being arrested. And the Muslim Brotherhood is, again, once again, I'm not mistaken, to be a member of the Muslim Brotherhood is illegal, I think, these days at the moment, uh, uh, with, with, with the trial of the Mursi, etc. Here we go. The head of the PR centre for the Muslim Brotherhood is London now. So if somebody wants to contact the Muslim Brotherhood, who is an official Egyptian organisation, wants a, a, a media uh, comment, they have to contact somebody in London. However, what that person should say comes from the USA. That's the dynamics. The intellectual thought and ideas for how Islamism can survive in the West and around the world in a modern age, 21st century, is coming from organizations in the US. I don't want to name them because I don't know whether it's fair to name them. They're not here. Who's able to defend themselves? I don't know whether that's a good idea, but they are. I mean, offline, I'm happy to have a conversation as to who I believe is what, who's saying what, etc. Who's doing what? Yes. So, if it's clear that the Muslim Brotherhood is one of the channels of Islamism, you say that is that is clear. It's according to their own website. What do you attribute the 
active support of the current administration for the Muslim Brotherhood and, the, and all the ways in which it has been trying from its, uh, from its, from its onset to, to assist it. From the beginning of the administration till clearly what's happening these days was the, the curtailing of the military aid, the curtailing of the economic aid, the, the pressure that's being put upon the Egyptian government and so on. Is this naivete? Or is it, or is it, or is it not? Or is it actual, is it, an, or is it, or is it more, is it, is it, is it something else? Okay. Um, thank you for that question. It's something that I was, we were talking about earlier on today. Um, I don't think it, I, I, I would hate to think that Obama and the administration were naive. God help us if they are naive. Uh, God help us if, if the leader of the free world is naive. Uh -huh. uh, so I guess there must be something behind it. I think it's a combination of a whole range of things. I think there's an element of political correctness. I think there's an element that believes that the Islamist active version of Islam is the default version of Islam, therefore it needs to be engaged with and supported. I think there's an element of, you know what, these guys don't like us, and maybe they're exactly the people that we should be talking to, encouraging, empowering, supporting, because if we throw lots of money and support their way, they may like us. I think there's an element of that. I think there's an element of people who are advising uh, the administration, and if you look at their backgrounds, uh, some of them, not all of them, but not quite a significant number of them, um, fit within, I don't know if you saw the triangle that I put up earlier on, uh, the thick black line, I think a number of them fit in that category, uh, in, in that black line, and some of them actually were members of Islamist organizations before they came to the US and set up um, organizations here. Um, I think there's an element of far left, almost grievance culture, supporting of people that they believe that the Americans and British colonialism has impacted in. So I think it's a combination of all of these. Um, I don't know, and only he can tell you, um, the president, uh, President Obama, how much influence these ideas have had on him when he was growing up. You know, in terms of his father and grandfather, I don't know. Don't know whether he was, um, maybe he was, I don't know, exposed to certain viewpoints. Not that he can answer that. Um, and I think that generally there is a belief that if we're nice to these guys, they'll be nice back to us. Could you identify it with the, not at this moment, and so on, but at a certain point, I don't know whether anyone has done it, who among the current advisors in the administration fit in that triangle? Uh, I know them, obviously, I don't. Know I think it would, be a service, it would be a service to all of us to identify them. Okay. Sure, offline I'm happy to, but I don't know whether it's a good thing to me. No, no, not here, but, but maybe through the organization or something. Sure. Yeah. Okay, I'm, I'm contemplating that with myself. <laughs> uh, I, um, I would... I'm not sure I agree with that entire answer, and I <clears throat> definitely think that I don't agree. I've spent a lot of time thinking about this, and I've talked a lot in my last few years with people high up in the administration about some of the problems where these issues would come to bear. And I actually don't adopt the premise that, that, this, that there's an Islamist tinge inside the influential corners of the White House. We can debate that point, and you may know some people, I, I don't think that's the, uh, that characterizes even some of the usual suspects, such as the current head of the National Security Council, Susan Rice, or the 
United States Ambassador to the United Nations, Samantha Power, I don't think they are very liberal. And there are, uh, and I think ultimately naive as well. I, I, would, use, I would use the word naive. I'm not, I'm not afraid to use it here in this context. I don't think it's a politically incorrect word. I think it's an accurate word. But I think there's something else that you, a serious thing that you didn't mention. There is a trap that's very difficult for any American government, but the Obama administration has particularly stepped into the trap. The Bush administration was on the verge of it once or twice also. And that is, we are all Democrats with a small d. And we all believe that democracy is the ideal form of government anywhere in the world, and including the Middle East. But democracy as a be-all and end-all in the sense that we give credence to any elected government at the moment, no matter what the uh, philosophy of that government is, if, if a overtly terrorist government is elected, some administrations find it very hard not to support that government. And that, I think, is a Hamas is an example that's serious the, the Hamas election in Gaza was a, was a problem. We, we, we wanted those elections. The Israelis wanted to slow the process up. We wanted to speed the process up, and we ended up with a mess in Gaza, in my opinion. I think also people sometimes mistake the whole concept and, and, of democracy. And I'm saying that even though I have a strongly pro-Jewish point of view and a, and a pro-Israel point of view, which I won't hide, I'm saying that from an American and a democratic point of view, it created a big problem for us. They call it terrorists. Yes. They're terrorists, and, they're, and the fact that they were democratically elected and persuaded people to a large extent, impoverished people on grounds of charitable help and so on, those are those are problems that, that do not necessarily require a pro-democratic American government to give support to a so-called democratically elected group of terrorists. That's exactly what I'm saying. Okay, yes? So I, I, don't, I don't think... Um I don't think uh, like Dr. Mr. Rafik is uh, referring to anyone like that, like Susan Rice, no, or no. ambassadors, or anyone like that. I believe he's referring to um, uh, advisors on the Muslim world to the president, particularly uh, uh, the advisor to, uh, to the representative to the OIC, and uh, other, other advisors yeah. on the Muslim world. And there is, in particular, have had a, a, a very marked um, influence. I think that's what he Okay. That's well taken, and I wasn't insinuating that anybody actually thinks that Susan Rice or Samantha Power are Islamists, but they are very influential and they're very liberal, and so the tinges that he described, but I, that's completely well taken. And just to add to this a little bit, um, Shlomo, I was recently in South America, Shlomo Benami, the moderate uh, Israeli politician, uh, told the, the group in Argentina that the only friend that Israel has in the Americas, the only real friend that uh, Israel has in the Americas, is Canada. And I was on a speaking tour uh, organized by the Ministry of Foreign Affairs of Canada, and I can assure you that the Canadian government is having fits, fits, at the policy and the engagement of the Obama administration and some of its leading advisors on Islamic affairs. Hmm. Canada, which is a democratic country, and I would argue is in many ways more liberal in the true sense of 100%. And the United States yeah. of America, is very concerned at the foreign policy of the United States. 
you know that, that, that this notion of, you know, the joke, everyone knows the joke, it's one vote, one man, one vote, one time. But aside from, the, from that, I think it, it seems to me almost unbelievable that our definition of democracy um, should, especially among Americans, should be so narrowly focused on elections. When we ourselves would not accept the Constitution without a Bill of Rights, and I think those of us who are right-thinking did not accept America as a democracy until after the Emancipation Proclamation. Um, and we were doing a lot of electing up until the Emancipation Proclamation. We were doing a lot of voting and a lot of electing up until that point. Yeah, and I think that, that should yeah, happen. That should get us so-called democratic electing. And I think that I think I think if we need a lesson to understand democracy, I think democracy is a set of institutions and not simply not simply one of those institutions is election, but certainly a set of a set of institutions including protection of minorities. And, and what would it, what would expect the leadership of this, of this country to be able to to articulate that uh, more better and and, and uh, more better? <laughs> yeah, I, but no, I, think I think it's really a problem because I think this trap that you that the trap that you that you describe in some way is a strong man trap, and if we we are we articulated a just in a slightly more sophisticated version, well, of one the one one not so sophisticated way, but a convincing way to describe it is that Hitler was democratically elected. Exactly. Yes. I would like to point out, again, as Dr. Polner, that I feel very sad that there are so few students in this room that if you go into the classrooms of Columbia as well as CUNY, you will find so many anti-Israel professors who are propagandizing these students. If you go out on the low library square, you will see huge signs that are anti-Israel in nature. And I find it incredible that we don't have students here and we're not bringing them in and they are being educated by these people who are basically educating them for well, I, I, let me. I think I'd also like to deflect the conversation. This is a particular topic. I, the point's well taken. Thank I'm you. a member of the Columbia faculty. I think my credentials as being strongly... Uh, I totally are, agree. Are, I have also taught I, at but Columbia. I, but I think we're, we're, we're not talking tonight about... We, we all know what the culture is I was commenting on the fact that American there are so few young people here. And it was well publicized. Yes, it was. Students, 4.30 in the afternoon. I we can't do this in the middle of class day. And uh, I, I, I too would have expected and hoped it was well publicized that we have people from the community more than we have students, to say the least. And uh, I regret that, and uh, I'm not quite sure what to do about it. Students were fully informed of this program. A lot of programs come through here, and, and they pick and choose, and maybe maybe this one didn't look controversial. Enough. I'm suggesting that Chakotri propagandized before these kinds of events that they never did here. That's my suggestion. I think this one was okay. Yeah. Just that I, I'm a member of the I'm a, I'm a member of ESF, proudly a member of the ESF board, and I, I I want to take a more optimistic perspective, which is I think it's fantastic that we're here, that this gap is here. Five years ago, this you wouldn't have had. Three years ago, you wouldn't have had this. I want to thank Charles for all hard work that he did. We are here, and we have no pickets. We are we are here, <laughs> and, and this is the inaugural. Look, look at the cup of water full. Those of us, those of us who are faculty as well, and your faculty, and for those of us who are faculty, will point out the existence of this on, on, on the website, so Columbia students will be able to see your lectures a lot more. We'll see it. 
that are present here tonight yes. through, the, through the website. Um, and as has happened in other universities, I am sure that the presence of his gap talks will grow exponentially as it has everywhere else where we have had a foothold in. So I'm, I'm more optimistic and I thank you for being the inaugural speaker. Yeah. I now follow the New York Times pretty carefully. And uh, it seems to me that they, they support the Muslim Brotherhood. And uh, I just wonder if you have some comments about that. The, the, the I would make the same comment that I made before. They are trapped in the democratically elected governments rather than directly supporting the Muslim Brotherhood, in my opinion. And, and I think the New York Times, I, I, any negative implication that I said had about might have been misinterpreted about either Samantha or Susan Rice, both of them are good friends of mine. Is, I completely, completely withdraw and apologize for that. I didn't mean it in the sense that you said it. The New York Times, I'm willing to say anything. Because what they do is they do not emphasize the Morsi's abrogation of democracy when he did. They minimize that and they dwell on the fact that they want a coalition. Now, they want a democratic process. So they're deliberately uh, minimizing Morsi's uh, departure from democracy, they won't talk about what he did with the courts and he took judicial authority. Right. And so they do this, and they, right. if you read it carefully, you see this. So, and now this is also following the administration approach to Egypt. Yeah. So what is going on here? The problem is, is and, and their values are antithetical to all the New York Times values. We've got the women, gays, and everything else. Yeah. Yet, they're going in this direction and, and, and as a spokesgroup for the administration. We have a similar problem in the UK with The Guardian. With The Guardian newspaper? Yeah. Exact same problem. Uh, their values would very much seem to be identical with you know, the values of the Muslim brotherhood. You know, uh, the homophobic values, the anti-women, the sexist, misogynist values, uh, the racist values that Islamists promote throughout the world are at a complete opposite spectrum of what really one would expect the Guardian to believe and support. And yet they wholeheartedly, full blown, and I've been having numerous debates with them in the UK for the last seven years or so, are not just from the elections, but even before the elections, were supporting and still continue to be supporting Islamists because they've, they've, they've almost, I mean I can speak for the Guardian, I'm not, I, my own experience with the Guardian, but I'm not sure what's happening here in, uh, in New York, but they certainly have fallen into the trap that they believe that Muslims as a whole are under attack and that if somebody attacks Islamists, they're attacking Islam. Therefore they don't want to be seen as being Islamophobic. Therefore, they see themselves as the defenders of Islam, when in actual fact, the first victims of Islamists are other Muslims. And they're the ones, I think Charles Mitchell said, they're the ones that are Islamophobic. I, I, I would say that Islamists are Islamophobic. But I, I have a theme to that that should not go to be talk, talking strategically about how one deals with this, because this is a this, this is a, we're talking about a cancerous problem in the world right now. 
I don't think that's an exaggerated way to put it. It's out, of, it's out of hand and it's dangerous and it's going all over the place. One of the things that you can do is figure out a way to create some outrage. And how come the international press doesn't focus more than a drop on the treatment of Christians throughout the Muslim world? Because Jews are tiny by comparison. The number of persecuted Christians is far greater than the number of persecuted Jews. And yet, I was, there's a charter of rights, and again, we've spoken about this earlier, Charles and I have lunch, there's a charter of rights which sits in a uh, monastery in Syria, which has the second largest collection of Christian relics outside of Rome. And there is a charter of rights there, which has been signed by the Prophet Muhammad, peace upon him, which basically says, and I'm paraphrasing that, anybody who fights with Christians, anybody who tries to threaten Christians, anybody who uh, upsets him in any way, is upset again, therefore upsetting Muslims, therefore Christians are to be supported, their enemies are Muslims' enemies around the world, and this charter exists from now until the Day of Judgment. And yet, Christians are being, you're absolutely right, persecuted in the Middle East, much more than, I, I guess, Jews aren't being persecuted as much because most of them have migrated. It's got very few of them inside Muslim yeah. countries, and Israel is the, yeah. Israel is the surrogate. Uh, maybe Morocco, maybe there's, there's a few Morocco, Morocco. Except in Morocco, generally, the, the, the king is, the, is a, yeah. a great protector. That's right. Jews in yeah. Morocco. Perhaps it's a lot safer for the reporters to be on the side of this. No, that's very interesting. I, whatever it is, I don't know. You, you, the New York Times, I think, you don't need to read a lot of the New York Times to come to the conclusion. It's ubiquitous. To come to your conclusion, you don't really need to read. What you need to do, you need to look at the front page pictures. That deal. Look at the front page pictures selected to deal with the Middle East. And if, if, if there is a terrorist attack followed by a retaliation, no matter how mild, the front page picture will show some Palestinian child, innocent Palestinian child. I regret the fact that some of these children are in the car up in this mess. Uh, who's been scared or cowering in the corner or injured. It does not show the victims of terrorism ever, virtually ever. And I, when Judy Redoran, who's the current Israel correspondent of the Times, was appointed, I met with her and had a, you know, I like thought that was my job to, to there's a, a lot of expressions, nothing helps, but I thought it was important to try to establish it. And I said something very simple to her. I said, of course you should write objectively, fairly, and here are all the ways in which I think you would be able to improve the Times reporting on the Middle East. But more than that, see if you can have some control over the selection of headlines and pictures. If you could just just change the headlines and the pictures to be neutral. That's my responsibility, that's the editor. That's what she said, but I said it's your responsibility, maybe, it ought to be your responsibility to see what tone is set. In, in your article, and the tone gets set by the pictures and the headlines as much as it does by what's written. Yeah. I, um, I'm just wondering, I've been wondering, getting, trying to get my head around this for the last many, many years around, around university culture and university culture having to do with radical chic. It, it, it seems to me that when I, when I went to school, I went to school here in the, in the, in the, early, set, in the early 70s, um, there, there was. There was how early in the 70s, when it was still hot on campus, so yeah. it started to cool off? Well, it was still hot. And, and there was a fascination. I was at City College as well. And, and there was a fascination on both campuses and an adoration, actually, announced at the time um, by, much of, by much 
position that was never reversed, never apologized for, never, never was there a sense on campus that, that, that the untold tens of millions who were, who were, who were killed as a result of this totalitarianism. And this idea that the, the, the fact that the fascination with totalitarianism on the one hand, as long as it was fired, um, and, and simultaneously an absolutely rigid um, uh, attitude towards the slightest abrogations of what's considered freedoms in the United States seemed to me in itself a kind of a kind of a racist dichotomy. Yeah, no question about it. A, a double standard of the most extreme dimensions. I think, I think also universities um, are a place that people explore radical ideas. And I think that it's also a place for people to be, for students to be rebellious. And to be rebellious against the established, perceived rebelliousness against the establishment is something that I think has historically happened around the world. Uh, this, the Islamist or the hate speeches, uh, preachers that are coming around preaching is a little bit more different because although Communist, Mount etc. They, they killed, they killed people, sort of, you know, the Far East, etc. They didn't really, to my knowledge, that I can put out, uh, blow any let off any bombs in Times Square or anything. Um, the problem we have here with what's happening now, the consequences for here in the U.S. are much more dangerous, and I think that's why some counter narrative is extremely important, and we're not getting that. I actually uh, would, would add, uh, and this will characterize my view of academia um, to an extent anyway. William Butler may have said the single most profound word about governance and politics that I personally have ever heard. William Buckley said, on the whole, I'm not going to imitate his accent, although I can. On the whole, I would rather be governed by the first three pages of the Boston Telephone Directory by the heart of the faculty. <laughs> yes? Uh, what, as a lawyer, I wonder if your function is to reconcile conflicting values, and you mentioned the problem of democracy. What do you do, I mean, it's an old conundrum, when the majority decides to execute a minority? What principle is involved? Is there a natural use the doctrine of natural law to override the principle? Oh, well, I, I think that's over my head. I'm a tax teacher, not a philosopher. But, Damn. yeah, I think that there, I think that there's, well, I know an atrocity that has to be uh, the Trump democracy when I see it. I can't describe it. I know pornography when I see it, and I can't describe it. Well, is a, in the back there was a... Yes, I have a comment since my area specialty is studying the campus. My area of specialty is studying the campus. Um, again, I'm Dr. Polner, and my thesis today is that the major dating service is not the internet, but it's going out and rebelling on the square. That's the best place for boy to meet girl, and they jump up and down, and they make a lot of noise, and, they, and this young man is smiling in the front of the room, and they get together, and they become very, very powerful, and that's the meeting place for boys and girls nowadays. And I think that doesn't get studied and it never gets talked about. But that's why we have so much of this. You know that they said something very similar. This is, I'm a Southern, and I'm born and raised in the Deep South. 
they said something very similar about the civil rights movement. Oh, a, a social, that it was a social gathering. I think it was much more than that and accomplished the oh, absolutely essential, essential growth in American democracy. But it, it, it was a, a byproduct was that it was a great social scene. Absolutely. And we have to study that and do something about it. Is there a question back here somewhere? Okay, I think maybe we ought to uh, thank Harris for a big for served a bigger audience, but he got a quality audience instead. And I, if it had more income, the quality would have diluted. Thank you. Um, I thank Charles also for bringing his guest here. And uh, we'll have more programs. Well, we have this guy, thank you, Professor Stillman.